Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, it's this morning we'll consider verses 18 through 29, the curse on Canaan. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, the curse on Canaan. Throughout the book of Genesis, the concept of blessing is central. The Hebrew term barak. But as central as blessing is to the narrative, cursing occasionally comes into play. And Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29 is one such place. Here we have a passage that has been analyzed and analyzed again and again and again with regard to certain aspects of it, which I'm going to introduce in just a moment. But all that analysis has really yielded no great consensus on what some of these, some of the details of this passage means. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. In spite, though, of serious disagreement among Old Testament scholarship as to the details of the last part of chapter 9, there is general accord on the point of the passage, and this is good. The point of the passage is this. God will bless those who act with moral purity, but discipline those who engage in moral degeneracy. And that's true of individuals. It's also true of cultures. It's generally accepted that the United States experienced a cultural mega shift in the 1960s that included not only major changes politically and economically, academically, but also in the area of sexual boundaries. From 1964 to 1975, there was a dramatic increase in the number of younger Americans who admitted participating in sex or sexual relations outside of the boundaries of marriage. And the trend doesn't seem to be abating, at least not presently. So, Before I go any further with our study this morning, it should be noted that God is the author or the inventor of sexual intimacy, and it's perfectly normal, and it's a good thing, provided that it is confined to the context for which it was designed, that being marriage. So the problem is not sexual intimacy itself, but the problem arises when that intimacy escapes the boundaries that were placed upon it by our Creator, the one who originated it in the first place. That's where the problem comes in. So let me, let me say that as a prelude to the rest of my comments today. Of course, now you're probably wondering, I, I see several of you reading furiously ahead of time to see what in the world is this passage about. <laughs> Hang in there. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that presently. The passage begins and ends with a fairly basic rim, rendering of a family data. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three men, or these three, were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now drop down, if you will, to verse 28, as, we, as there's a bookend at the end of this passage. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Verse 29 actually picks up with the flow of the narrative that Genesis 5 ended and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you may recall from 
the formula that was in chapter 5, a person lived X number of years, had Y number of children, and then died. Well, in, in chapter 5, it doesn't say anything about Noah dying. It introduces him there. But we have actually a four-chapter excursus or parentheses, and now we find at the end of chapter 9 that Noah died. The only exceptions in chapter 5 were Enoch and Noah, you'll recall. Both of these men, we, we learned, walked with God. Um, Enoch was taken, but now we find that Noah died. But the heart of this narrative unit is found in the account that is related between verses 20 and 27. Read along with me now, if you will. This is the heart of this narrative. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. These verses introduce, well, at least two questions, perhaps even more, but at least these two questions in most people's minds. What exactly happened in Noah's tent? And the second question is, why is Canaan cursed for something that Ham did? You, you may have picked that up. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But the one that's cursed is one of the sons of Ham, and that being Canaan. Before we attempt to answer those two questions, and I will attempt to answer them, we need to Consider the events that led up to Ham's actions. Here, like we have in, throughout this narrative from Genesis 6 to 9, we, we find some interesting parallels between the lives of Adam and the life of Noah. Noah is pictured in chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis as almost a second Adam. Not the last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, but a second Adam. As the father of all humanity was Adam... So Noah, in a sense, is the father of all the post-Diluvian world. By post-Diluvian, I mean post-flood world. So Adam, we, we all are descendants of Adam. But actually, we're all descendants of Noah as well. Both men worked the ground. Actually, you see, God planted a garden for Noah, or for Adam, rather. Adam oversaw the garden that God planted. And now we see that Noah, after the flood, plants a vineyard. The theme of nakedness comes into play for both men. Adam's recognition of his nakedness was reflective of the fact that he had sinned. Noah's nakedness was a reflection of the fact that he had become drunk. And also we see that the offspring of both of these men are affected by the sins of their fathers. The account of Adam's sin. Of course, now we're all affected by Adam's sin. We see that in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. But you recall that the, the account of the fall comes in Genesis chapter 3. But you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 4? You have the murder of Abel by Cain, his brother. So we see that Adam's sin is immediately expressed through his offspring, 
with something that's actually probably we would consider an even greater sin. Adam disobeyed. Cain disobeys in an even a greater way, we might say. In the same way with Noah. Noah's drunkenness is, is going to be followed by a curse on Canaan. And the curse on Canaan is going to be expressed even in the time of the Israelites. The, things that, the thing that Ham did, whatever it was, and we'll consider that in a moment, but whatever it was that Ham did, believe me, the Canaanites did that times ten, or maybe times a hundred. So we see parallels there. After the floodwaters receded, Noah plants a vineyard, which in time yields grapes. The grapes then ferment and produce wine. Whether or not this has been accomplished before is somewhat debatable. Some postulate that fermentation was unknown before the flood and that Noah was then caught unaware by the effects that took place in his body when he drank the wine. Others disagree with that, and they appeal to a passage like Matthew chapter 24, verse 38, which says, For in those days which were before the flood, this is Jesus speaking, For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Now, those that would take a different view understand that word drinking. You heard that they were eating and drinking. They understood that word drinking to refer to drinking of alcoholic beverages. But the Greek term, pino, that's used in Matthew chapter 24, just simply means to drink. It doesn't necessarily refer to drinking alcohol. If someone was to say, as they came in here this morning, hey, I saw Bruce out in the hall right before he started this sermon, drinking, I hope your first thought would not be that I had a a fifth of scotch or pint or whatever the amount of scotch is that you drink, and, and I was uh, getting inebriated before we did the sermon. Of course, some of you might say the sermon might be a little bit more interesting if he did that. <laughs> but, but there's a water fountain out there. So I would, I would assume that your first thought will maybe be he stopped at the water fountain to get a drink. Every time you see the word drink in the New Testament, it doesn't necessarily refer to drinking alcohol. And in fact, most of the time it doesn't. Jesus, Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and let him drink. Um, Jesus, right before this or right after this, is going to say, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So, no, when, they, when the text says they were eating and drinking, it doesn't necessarily follow that they were drinking alcohol there. So, that, um, Dr. Ryrie was one that held that view, but, but I think that it's a little bit weak. So this is an area where it's difficult to be dogmatic. But we could note from this narrative that Noah's behavior is not specifically condemned here. So that might, it might give a nod to the idea that he didn't know what to expect. But either way, I don't intend to be dogmatic because the text is not dogmatic. That's not, it doesn't seem to be germane to the story here. So in either case, in either case, what we need to remember is that the original recipients, the original readers of Genesis, Moses' original audience were Israelites who had just escaped 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now, where they came from, the Egyptians believed that the god Osiris had created wine as a gift to the Egyptians. So Moses here, if nothing else, Moses here is refuting that myth. 
The wine wasn't from Osiris. It was actually a result of human endeavor and, and um, post-flood. So it came a long, long time before the Egyptians. Now, this might step on a toe or two. I hope it doesn't. It's not my intention to do that. But, but we need to be clear here. Wine in and of itself is not bad. May I say that again, and if you want to, a couple of the doors are still open. You can storm the exits if you like. But, but wine in and of itself is not bad. Planting a vineyard is considered a noble venture elsewhere in Scripture. The psalmist declares in Psalm 104 that, quote, it gladdens, speaking of wine, it gladdens the heart of man, end quote. And wine is symbolic of the bliss that is to come in the millennium, as per Zechariah chapter 8, verse 12, and Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, wine will flow freely in the millennium. And it's wine, my friends, it's not simply grape juice. Now, here's where we need to be very clear, though. The Bible never, the Bible never condones being drunk with wine. In fact, quite the opposite. But the, the Bible also never condemns the drinking of wine. We studied this in our study of the Gospel of John. Our Lord made wine, and he drank it, but he never became drunk with it. And, and yes, I'm, I'm very much aware that sometimes wine in the ancient world was diluted, sometimes one-to-one, sometimes as much as one-to-ten, and probably... They were using the wine in there to, just, to get some of the bad microorganisms out of it without knowing what microorganisms were. But to, but to teach that the wine of the ancient world was simply grape juice, that's naive, my friends. It is naive. First place, there wasn't any refrigeration in the ancient world. Fermentation would have occurred naturally fairly quickly. So there's nothing wrong with wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine. There's everything wrong with being drunk with wine. You see the point. Nothing wrong with wine. Nothing wrong with drinking wine. Everything wrong with being drunk with wine. In the same way as we started out, there's nothing wrong with sexual intimacy. God invented it. But there's everything wrong with sexual intimacy outside the boundaries that God has placed upon it. Okay? You see the parallels there. So our Lord made wine, and he drank wine, but he never became drunk with wine. Not even close. But Noah made it. He drank it, he was drunk with it, and he took his clothes off as a result of it and apparently passed out in his tent because of being drunk. That much is pretty clear. But what follows next is what is difficult to explain. The text simply says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Well, this is where the opinions of Old Testament scholars start going all over the map. Some understand this phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, as euphemistic for some form of sexual sin that was committed against Noah by Ham in this vulnerable state. Others see this as Ham doing something with Noah's wife, having some sort of sexual intimacy with Noah's wife, Still others are the opinion that Ham might have performed some violence against his father, Noah. And the prevailing idea is if there was violence performed against him, it was a castration or something along those lines. 
as much as I would like to be able to tell you dogmatically what it was, none of the things that I just told you can be validated from the text with anything approaching certainty. That, that's why New Testament scholarship's all over the map about it. When, when things can be approached with certainty, scholarship is typically not all over the map. One of the, things that I, one of the reasons I think it's good to have a couple different translations of the Bible in your library is because when you do your reading in one Bible and maybe come back and do it in another and maybe even do it in a third, sometimes you'll see a narrative maybe, maybe all the same except for one or two verses. And then those one or two verses are really radically translated differently by the translators and the editors. Well, when you see that, you, what, you, what you can ascertain is that that verse is very difficult to translate in either Hebrew or Greek. And there are some problems with that verse. That's why the translators, they translate it differently. Not that they're knuckleheads, not that they're stupid, because that's as stupid of a thing as I've ever heard to think that the translators were stupid. They only get the, the scholar scholars to do those kind of things. It's that, that the underlying text was difficult to work with. The same thing when you see theological issues come up like this. When you have people that work in the Old Testament all the time, and they come up with so many different ideas about what could have happened here, the reason is it's not clear. And we can't validate any of those things from the text itself. Now, th there are reasons why they hold that. The text here says he saw his father's nakedness. And in other places it says talks about uncovering someone's nakedness. And, and in those places it does certainly refer to, to sexual activities. But here we can't tell for sure. There's no clear evidence that Ham did anything other than, quote, see the nakedness of his father, end quote, and tell his brothers about it. That's the only thing we can say with certainty. Whether it's euphemistic or not, we just can't say. And when we just can't say, you know what? It's probably not the major point of the passage. I hope that dawned on you. If it was the major point of the passage, God would have made it more clear. So you see, sometimes as expositors, and, and exegetes for that matter, we get so interested in certain of the details, and we get wrapped up in that, we get so focused in on that, that we miss the big picture. We miss what's really being said here. And what's really being said is, no matter what it was, Noah's going to consider it immoral. God considered it immoral. And that, that behavior is going to be cursed, whereas what... Shem and Japheth do is considered moral, and that's going to be blessed. That's the point of the passage. So while I do, I'll do everything I can to, to try to give you some of the options, here we can't say for sure. And I'm not, I'm not sure that further speculation about the specific nature of the offense is really going to be fruitful here. It seems that Ham's actions were at the very least... At the very least, Ham's actions, whatever they were, were disrespectful of Noah and constituted a breach of morality. That's what we can agree upon. That's what actually, that's, there is a consensus about that in Old Testament scholarship. At the very least, we can say that whatever it was he did that is described by this phrase, whatever it was he did was at very least disrespectful of his father and constituted a breach of morality. Well, in contrast, the actions of Shem and Japheth were considered to be morally upright or morally correct. They respect their father. Whatever's happened, Ham comes out and tells them about it. Some, again, some in Old Testament scholarship say that Ham came out and bragged about it. But again, it's a little difficult to validate that. It's possible, 
but the brothers, Shem and Japheth, who are the, the ones that are the picture of moral correctness here, respected their father and then walked into the tent backwards, carrying a blanket or a covering, and then they covered their father up without, without uh, laying their eyes upon him. And they will be blessed, as per verses 26 and 27, for this respectful and moral behavior. So once again, you, you see the, the contrast that's being laid here. Whatever it was that Ham did, it was disrespectful and considered to be immoral by the text. And then Shem and Japheth, their behavior is considered to be moral by the text. Ham is going to be, or actually one of the descendants of Ham is going to be cursed because of the behavior. And Shem and Japheth will be blessed because of the behavior. So the question number one, what exactly happened in that tent? I don't know. But it's not germane, the detail is not germane to this story. And we can still get the point without having to have that particular detail. Apparently God felt like some things were better left unsaid. Whatever happened, Noah considered it inexcusable and was incensed because of it. Verse 24 says, when Noah awoke, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So th this, would, this would lead me to think that it was more than just gazing upon him or just walking by and seeing his father in a state of nakedness. Whatever it was, Noah considered something that had been done to him. Now comes the curse. And now comes the second of our questions for this morning. Why in the world curse Canaan, who's the youngest son of Ham, rather than Ham himself? This is a very difficult question as well. Now, we, sh we should realize that in the cursing of his offspring, Ham is certainly, certainly affected. He's certainly injured in some sense. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than God just punishing a child in order to get at his father. God really doesn't work that way. I've, I've heard that expressed sometimes by, by, by grieving parents. Something perhaps may happen to a child. Perhaps a child gets into drugs or into alcohol. Or, or perhaps a child is, is injured badly or even killed in an automobile accident. And, and the parents huddle together and they say, oh, Lord, this, this must have been because of something that I did. You know, oh, if I, if I hadn't cheated on my taxes, my son might still be alive today. Or, uh, you, know, you know the kind of thought. I would caution you against thinking that way. I guess, I suppose God could do that. But, but that's not the norm. <clears throat> Certainly, I, I've read the Old Testament as well. I know what happened to David and his children. But I'm not sure that that's a pattern for how God is going to deal with people. So don't be harder on yourself than is really called for. Sometimes God has a plan that's far deeper, so, so much deeper that in our finite minds that we cannot understand it. And it may be heaven before we ever get to sit down and say, Father, why did that have to happen? And he said, well, sit down with me now that you've got some time. Let me take a few decades. And explain it to you. And I think there's going to be a lot of things like that. We can't think in the way that God thinks. His mind is, his intelligence is infinite. Ours is not. 
So surely Ham is somewhat injured by the curse on Canaan, but I think that there's more to it than that. The Mosaic Law does incorporate judgment from one generation to the next with, according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children. But that's only, that's only if the next generation continues in the sinful pattern of the parents. If the children are innocent, then the sins of the parents are not visited upon the children. Noah is proclaiming here that the descendants of Ham will act in accordance with the moral depravity of Ham. So in a way, this is an oracle. This is, you almost might say, prophetic. He's looking down the corridors of time. And he understands that the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, will, will act with the same moral depravity that their ancestor did. So to the Hebrew mind, the Canaanites were the natural embodiment of Ham. And remember, once again, that this book is being written to a people who are out in the desert, They've left Egypt. They're about to enter into the land where there are giants, where the reputation has preceded these people. And they're scared. And one of the major points of Moses writing Genesis is to say the God who created everything created even these Canaanites. So if God's on your side, you don't need to be afraid of the Canaanites. But here God is giving through Noah and then ultimately, I guess, the human author being Moses, rather. He's giving us the the background of the people that the Israelites are about to go conquer. At least in time, they will. So this is an oracle, in a sense, given through Noah on a people who did not yet exist when Noah gives this oracle. But in his omniscience, God knew. God knew with certainty how these people would behave in the future. In fact, by the time of the Exodus, the immorality of the Canaanites far exceeded whatever Ham had done, by a lot. Just like the murder of Cain seems to far exceed this almost simple rebellion of, uh, on Adam's part, although rebellion against God is never simple. Could we say that Cain took it to another level with, his, with the murder of his brother? Sin never seems to decrease, does it? Always seems to get worse and more intense. Well, in the same way, the Canaanites took the moral degeneracy of their ancestor, their father, Ham, and took it to another level. The people of Canaan, by the time of the Exodus, were known for their child sacrifices, for their sexual perversion, which was which was often associated with Baal or Baal worship, if you prefer, and for intense cruelty. So the Canaanites took it to another level. And this is what Noah is foreseeing. This is what Noah is placing this oracle against Canaan. This is the reason that he's doing that. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered it, covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now for this, skipping down to verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now Noah 
is worshiping God. There's a blessing that's going to come to Shem and Japheth, but the blessing is actually pronounced toward God. Now, here's something we need to remember. In Hebrew Bible, when, when, when God blesses us, it's pretty clear. It means he's, he's giving us something that, uh, in a graceful way that we don't deserve. He's keeping us from some sort of disaster. He's rescuing us. We say God blessed us. When we bless God, when the psalmist bless God, that always bothered me. That bothered you? What, what do I have to bless God with? Well, see, when that term is used and, the, and God is the recipient, it means to worship. So Noah is, is worshiping God with regard to this terminology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. Do you see how this would be pertinent to, to Israelites who are about to enter into the land? They're scared to death right now. They're frightened. They don't want to go in. But Moses is reminding them that way back, right after the flood, this was prophesied. There was an oracle about this. And Canaan is going to be the servant of Shem. Now, Shem is where we get the term Semite, but this is where the Israelites come from, is from Shem. And in verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Canaan's not in a very good spot right here. From the, from the get-go, before Canaan's even born, it seems, God knows what's going to happen. So there's a cursing upon Canaan, a blessing, in a sense, a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. Now, one final note here. And this is a very important final note. So I would, I would really ask for the last two to three minutes here, your most intense attention and concentration. Ham had four sons. Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Cush, okay? Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Cush is... Biblical scholarship thinks that perhaps that's the area of Ethiopia. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Put uh, is an ancient word for the area around Libya. And of course, Canaan is the term for the Phoenician Sea peoples who ended up populating uh, what we call today Palestine or Israel. So Ham had these four sons, according to Genesis chapter 10, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 8. So Ham is the ancestor of the Egyptians, as well as the Ethiopians, as well as the Libyans, as well as what is probably true, as well as most of the people that live in Africa, or that lived in Africa, Arabia, and Canaan. Ham is the ancestor of these people. But notice, please, please notice this. The curse was on Canaan. There is no reason, and this is what I want you to really listen to me now, there is no reason to believe that this curse extended to Cush, to Mitzrayim, or to Put. In other words, to all people of color. Unfortunately, and I'm going to be as nice as I can be here, some less competent students of the Bible have, in the past, taught that all people are of color are cursed here. The curse of Ham, 
I've heard it said. That is not the case. And that idea is, is thoroughly unbiblical. That idea, which is so thoroughly unbiblical, has caused so much consternation, so many hard feelings amongst people, particularly in Africa. When Americans will say something so stupid, or Europeans will say something so stupid, as there's an entire continent that has been cursed just because of the color of your skin. And that has done great damage. I hope that you will never say something like that, especially based upon this passage. Woe unto you. I would not want to be in your shoes if that's what you do. Because in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ, there's no male or female. In Christ, there's no slave or free. And what that means when he says there's no Jew or Gentile, those are racial distinctions of the day. There are no superior races in God's eyes. There are no inferior races in God's eyes. Don't, at least if you do, do me this one favor. You have freedom of speech, and I'm serious about this. If you choose to go out and say something like that, or to hold that, you're welcome to do it. Please come and talk to me and tender your resignation as a member of Pine Valley Bible Church. Don't wear a t-shirt. Don't wear the baseball cap. Don't put a bumper sticker on your car. Don't put a fish on the back. Don't tell anybody you're a Christian. And especially don't tell them you're from here. Because it's wrong. It's hurtful. It's as wrong as it could possibly be. It has no place in Christianity. That teaching is uninformed. It is cruel. And it should not be spoken. So I hope... I hope I made that clear. Perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you haven't. Even if you've heard of it, in deep down in your soul, you knew it was wrong, didn't you? You already knew that it was wrong. Just the Holy Spirit convicting you within would tell you that that, that kind of thought is, is completely unacceptable. Well, let me summarize as we finish now. The message to the Israelites, the first recipients of this book, the book of Genesis, the message to them was clear. The people who currently occupy the land that they're about to go into, these people are degenerate. They're cruel. They engage in child sacrifice. And their, immoral, their immorality has roots that go all the way back to right after the flood, to the ancient past. When God tells the Israelites to wipe these people out, he has a reason for doing so. He's righteous in doing so. He has a purpose and I know that, that purpose may be difficult to ascertain, but this gives us just a little clue about it. And the message to us down through the centuries is clear as well. God will bless those who act with moral purity. But he is going to discipline or curse those who act, those who engage in moral degeneracy. Heavenly Father... We look at our culture today, and aside from the child sacrifices, we, we see much of Canaan. And even in a sense, we tend to sacrifice our children. We do pray that as time goes on, those in the Christian community, and we specifically, might be a light to this culture, that we might not add to the problem, but we might be part of the 
your divine solution to this problem, that our lives might be so transformed by our love for you and our knowledge of the Word of God and everything that goes with that, that we would be able to change this culture from the inside out, truly ministering for you in what do seem to be rather dark days, at least morally. We know we can't do that on our own, so I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to do that, would help to transform us from the inside out so that we might be lights to a lost and dying world that needs you so desperately. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.